it seems very strange to me to enter into uh, December without any snow on the ground. And even as much as it's a pain to have snow, and I know that's probably not the sentiment of everyone, uh, it is nice to have it at Christmas. Amen. I'm glad to see you all this morning. <clears throat> my uh, This cough is still hanging on. My voice is not 100%. <clears throat> so if I hack a bit, you'll forgive me, please. <clears throat> We've been in a study now of uh, the Gospel of John for, for about a, a year and, well, a few weeks, a few months, a year, a year and a few months, two years and a few months, excuse me. And uh, I have learned a great deal studying this gospel. The last time we looked at this passage, we saw some Greeks that came to speak to Jesus. Uh, They wanted to speak to him personally. These Greeks represent the enormous number of souls that God will call into his kingdom among every tribe, every nation, and every language on earth. When they came to him, Jesus didn't answer them directly uh, toward uh, toward the request uh, of these Greeks, but he did give a gospel message, a message that would be the entrance into a life of fellowship and peace with God. You see, that's what's missing in the world. The peace of God. It's missing because they don't know the Son of God. The only way real peace comes, and every Christmas we sing about peace and peace, more peace, and yet there's less peace on earth. Until the Son of God, the Prince of Peace comes, there will not be true peace. But there can be true peace in the hearts of people. In his initial gospel message, at this particular point, Jesus speaks of that which is necessary to become his disciple. I refer you back to verse 26, where Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Uh, Go back to 25. That's where I wanted to start. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever loses it in this world keeps it unto eternal life. We live in a world today where the gospel is so skewed, so misunderstood, uh, so uh, abused that people really don't understand what the gospel is. And so I wanted to spend just a little time here this morning on verse 25. And I thought one of the best ways to do that 
<clears throat> to see this great paradox between losing and gaining, between life and death, is to go to other passages in the Gospels that, that show this same paradox and examine them in light of what he says here in verse 25. And so, if you'll indulge me, I would like for you to turn to these passages. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you in the pew. And so, let's, let's go first to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> one of the good things about expositional preaching verse by verse is that you can expound on the verses in the, as, in the order that they come and you don't have to worry about interjecting or, or finding some specific topic as you go along. But the topics are all covered because the Scripture covers virtually everything that can be faced in life. Verse at a time. I remember years ago when I started preaching uh, expositionally, people would come to me and they would say things like, oh, I'm having a hard time following what you're saying, and so on and so on. And, it, and you know, it's just I can't seem to get this down. And I said, just give it a month or two. Give it a month or two. And you won't want anything else. You will see the benefit of it. It's like the difference between eating steak and oatmeal. And sure enough, most, most people who stayed with it come back saying, yes, I can see what you meant. So follow with me now as we look at Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse, look at verse 39, if you will. A very similar statement, but a little different in the way that he projects it. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Now, what did he say in John? He said, whoever loves his life. Here, he uses the word finds. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will, for my sake, will find it. So you have the paradox of finding and losing. Here Jesus is speaking of a particular life that one discovers. The word finds means to attain to a particular state or a particular place in life. You've come to a particular point in life through discovery of life. The things that you discover about life. Whether they're on purpose or whether you're actually searching for them. And Jesus says here that the things that the world offers are the things you discover. You're trying to attain them. You're trying to uh, uh, particular, come to a particular quality of life in the things that you attain. And Jesus is saying... That in order to be his disciple, in order to follow him, that pursuit of attainment must be lost. That's the life he's talking about losing. Now, he's, he's not saying that you, you do this in some ritualistic form, some religious 
exercise where you <clears throat> deprive yourself of things that the world has in order to become a Christian. Because you could go and live in a cave somewhere and have nothing, and you still wouldn't become a Christian that way. He's saying that there must be a willingness in the, in the soul of the individual to give up whatever attainments there are in this life for Christ. It is a concentration here on getting the best here and now. It is what the natural human being grapples for and tries to find. But when one is willing to give up those qualities of life that people hold so dear, like, like comfort and convenience and security and vitality and happiness and health, when they're willing to give up those things for Christ, they find in Christ sufficiency. They find in God a sufficient, sufficient, sufficient life that brings satisfaction that simply giving up things cannot bring. They realize that this earthly life is temporary and that Christ promises eternal blessings that far outweigh that, those temporary ones that we have here in this life. John Bunyan, when he was brought before the magistrates to be sentenced to prison, this is what he said. Sir... The law of Christ has provided two ways of obeying. The one is to do that which I in my conscience do believe I am bound to do actively. Where I cannot obey it actively, there I am willing to lay down and suffer what they shall do to me. In other words, he was willing to give it up. Give up his comforts. Give up his... His life at home. Give up his being with his children and his wife. He was willing to give it up to have Christ. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 16. So Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses it for his sake, will find it. Now in Matthew 16, verse 25, he makes another of these similar statements. And by the way, this particular statement in Matthew 16, 25 is echoed in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, and Luke 9, verse 24, verbatim. Mark adds one thing to it. <clears throat> so I'll read Matthew first, verse 25, 16, 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? But he uses a different word here. He uses the word save. Which means to rescue from harm or evil. It means to preserve something from danger or destructive destruction. Whoever saves his life. <clears throat> Mark adds, but whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it, will save it. 
So here the individual is seen as doing that which will deliver him from the dangers and of harm, dangers and harm, or maybe imprisonment, or persecution, or even death. He's hanging on to those things. He's, he's faced like the teenage girl at, Col- at Columbine High School when a, a rifle was pointed at her and asked if she were a Christian. She said, yes, I am. And he shot her and killed her. She was willing to not save her life from danger or death. Now, death can be taken in two senses here. One, it can be taken literally. In this case, Jesus is preparing his disciples for martyrdom. Or it can be taken spiritually as one who consents to their own death spiritually, considering themselves to be dead to this life. In all these passages, Jesus uses this word life. And life is equal to the soul. The soul, your soul, is what gives you true life. Without your soul being resident in your body, you would be dead. Because that's what death is. It's the departure of the soul from the physical body. So the soul is that part of you which wills and thinks and feels. It is where the, one has the will, willpower. It is where, where we reason about things. We have emotions. Uh, we have a, a personality. With all the activities that we are engaged in, it has, it's the place where hope resides and aspirations reside. It's what makes you, you. When a person turns all these things over to Christ, he finds in him all that these earthly elements cannot give. He gives true peace. He gives heaven, heavenly joy and enjoyment. He gives a purpose beyond the elemental things of this earth. Now, one, pa- one final passage. Turn to Luke chapter 17. <clears throat> Luke chapter 17. Notice in verse 33 we have another of these very similar verses. <clears throat> he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. He seems to say this a great deal, doesn't he? Because this is the this is the very basic this is the basis of true salvation. The word preserve here means to be kept alive. It was used as a medical term for children who were born alive. Anyone who seeks to keep themselves alive at the expense of following Jesus will lose their life. They will lose it. There is no life 
in one who seeks to keep their own life preserved. It becomes the test of one's commitment to Christ. Jesus said it in Luke chapter 14. Now the great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, these are the... These are the... Demands of the gospel. There is, a, there is a forsaking that takes place in salvation. And for those who have never forsaken their old life, those who have, who have tried to preserve it at the expense of Christ, they're not Christians. And they have no hope. Because they've lost it. In all these passages that we've looked at, Jesus is saying, we lose life in its most, imp- in its, in its most important sense when we choose the temporary over the eternal. To spend oneself believing and trying to get the best that they can out of this present life here and now is believing a lie. Because you'll never get the best out of this life here and now. The best is yet to come. The best is found in Christ. Kenneth Wiest writes, The one loving in this way finds the object loved in a reflection of himself. There is a sense of narcissism within us that that seeks to want to look at ourselves and make the best for ourselves here and now at the expense of Christ. And this is what Jesus is teaching. You You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to see your life as worthless in comparison to Christ. And you have to make all earthly loves, no matter what they look like, seem like hate when compared to your love for Christ. That's why those who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ cannot ultimately hold this earthly life, whether it's by material, whether it's by material loss or physical loss or by loss of life itself, Jesus is worth more than all that we could gain here. And now we come to verse twenty-seven. So turn back to John. That was just. I wanted to make sure that you understand that the gospel, that salvation, is more than just saying, I'm a Christian. It's more than just a, an assent with the mouth who, that says, 
uh, oh yes, I, I, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean? It means you've lost everything. You're willing to lose everything to gain Christ. Some of you, some of you young people have you have your whole life ahead of you and you're planning and you're, 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 wondering what, you're thinking about what you're going to do in life, what, you, what you're going to make of yourself. Is Jesus Christ, is He in that? Or are you just, are you just your own master? Alright, look at verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus in his statement, continues on. And he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. So Jesus contemplates the immediate future. That's what he's doing here. Remember, he is one day away from dying on the cross. One day. Of course, he knows what is coming. He knows the severity of it. He will be killed in the most brutal of ways. This is the this depicts the ugliness of sin with its eternal weight of destruction. And none of us can fully understand what it cost God the Father. And what it cost God the Son to bring us a sal- to make a salvation for us, to, to redeem us. Not to mention the compilation of all the millions of other people whom God has extended grace and forgiveness to. We often pray, uh, at least I, I hope you pray, uh, that God will forgive you of your daily sins. But do we ever do we contemplate what it what it took for us to be able to do that? In verse twenty three, he had stated that he, where he says he answered, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." But now in verse twenty seven, he says. It's arrived. It's arrived. The now there is present. It is, it is that moment. And his soul is troubled. He could have said, I am troubled. The word troubled means to be or to become Distressed by affliction, danger, or need. This is a very strong word. And it's used figuratively to speak of severe mental or spiritual agitation. Of Of being deeply disturbed, upset, unsettled, horrified by something. People are 
troubled in this way when they hurt themselves badly and they fear that they're going to die. Or they have some disease that brings them to death's door. It creates in them a sense that they're going to lose something of great value. This word is used throughout John's Gospel. You'll recall in John chapter 5, verse 7, when Jesus came to the pool at Bethesda and the man was laying there. He'd been laying there for 30-some years and he couldn't get to the water when it was stirred up because he believed that if he could get in there first when it was agitated, that's the word, troubled. It's the same word used in chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary at the tomb of Lazarus weeping and those weeping with her. It says, and he was troubled greatly. We'll see it again in John 13. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and said, truly, one of you is going to betray me. We see it in chapter 14 when he says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. He says it again in verse 27 of that chapter. Here in verse 27, this word troubled is a perfect passive indicative, which means that it's a statement of fact that he was troubled. And the trouble was coming from outside of him. But the perfect tense says that he was troubled in the past and he has been troubled along as he goes. As he lives his life, he is experiencing this trouble over and over again. But now it has become increasingly intense. In other words, the horrors and terrors of the, of the impending cross were felt now like never before. A prisoner on death row awaiting execution. I know, I, don't, I know Minnesota does not have a death penalty, but North Carolina does. And in North Carolina, if you have the death penalty imposed upon you, you'll go to death row and you could be there for 10, sometimes 15 years or more before you're executed. Now, a person, a person that is condemned to death row at first may not feel the intense, troubling feelings of death. Because they know that it's not coming for a while. But as it draws close, as it draws to the time of execution, they began to feel it much more imminently. Jesus sees the reality of that death that he must die. It is one that surpasses any other death that you can think of. Because not only was it brutal, but it was lengthy. It wasn't a quick death. And it was agonizing. So what was his response to the horrors that he is about to face? We see his response 
Verse 27, he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now, what does he mean when he says this? Well, it seems, it seems rather simple, but it's not as simple as we might think. <clears throat> the statement, this statement has caused some difference of opinion as to what Jesus meant. Some say that at this point, coming to the, coming to the doorstep of the cross... And the death that he would die, Jesus wavers in his obedience as he approaches the cross, knowing full well what was ahead. I completely reject that sentiment, that interpretation. For if Jesus had wavered in his obedience to the Father, he would have sinned and he could not be the Savior. Another interpretation sees that there is only one question in verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You see the difference? One author, as one author puts it, save me out of the affliction and death of this hour. Now, is this not what he prayed in the garden? We will see. It is virtually the same kind of prayer. It was a prayer that speaks of his humanity. Jesus felt things just like you and I do. He wasn't some sort of superman that didn't feel pain or, or affliction or, or pressure or tension. He had all of those feelings. But Jesus knew that he had to die. He knew that. He knew that was why he was born. So what, he, what is he alluding to? Well, this is what he meant. Father, grant that after I have endured this hour of bitter agony and woe, that I might emerge from it triumphantly. That's what he's really saying. He's talking about his resurrection. He looked beyond the cross and saw the glory of God in the resurrection of himself. He uses this Greek preposition, ek. We would spell it ek in English. It means out of the midst of something. Save me. From, that's the word, from, from this hour. Save me from the midst of this hour. <clears throat> and he would emerge out of the midst of this event, be, that event being the suffering and the agony of the cross. He would emerge from that completely victorious in his bodily resurrection. This explains the meaning of his former statements. Father, glorify your name. Why would he say that? If he's just going to die, and there's, there's nothing beyond that, how could he say, Father, glorify your name? He couldn't. But he does. 
See, there would be no glory if he didn't die and fulfill the will of God. And there would be no glory for the name of God if he didn't rise from the dead. For there is no glory in a dead Messiah. Yet humanly speaking, he felt the severe turmoil of his soul. He felt the pain associated with bearing the curse of sin. As Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was cursed for you and for me. So that we wouldn't be cursed in the end. He saved us from Himself. For He will be the final judge. He will be the one who says to people, Depart from me, I don't know you. I never knew you. The death of Christ... And his resurrection is the central theme of the gospel. It takes up one-fifth of all the gospel material in the four gospels. One-fifth of it. Everything about the life of Christ flows down to this central point. That he was born to die and then rise again. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, Fear not, when he spoke, spoke to John. John fell down like he was dead before Christ. And he says to him, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one. I'm the living one, he said. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's the victory, and that's the glory that he's speaking of when he said, Father, glorify yourself. In fact, he was praying. He was praying here very much like he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11 when he said to them, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Exalted is your name. Glorified is your name. It was the same kind of prayer that he prayed in the garden in Luke 22 when he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The only way that we can glorify the Heavenly Father through the Lord, is through the Lord Jesus Christ in doing the will of God. Now he prayed this prayer because he would glorify the Father in his death on the cross as he displayed his great love for sinners, as he took their place as a substitute. Do you realize Christ Christ is your substitute. You should have been on the cross. I should have been on that cross. He took our place. 
He poured out His amazing grace on everyone who was undeserving. He, he forgave their sins, which are many. And he, presented, he, he is presented now to us as wisdom and power over death. The death of His only Son, Jesus Christ. That's the third time that God the Father has spoken from heaven. The other two were at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, when He said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then He said it again on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. This is My beloved Son. Listen to Him. Christ's perfect, sinless life glorified the Father. That's why the Father said, I have glorified it. And I'll glorify it again. He glorified it in the life that Christ lived. Perfectly sinless. Never an evil thought. Never an evil deed. Never a misstep. Perfectly. He lived His life before God the Father. Now the Father would glorify Himself again by the perfect vicarious death of Jesus Christ His Son. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that at this point Jesus was looking beyond the cross to the finished goal that the Father had given Him. He looked beyond the cross to the resurrection and the ascension in which He would go back to that place which He was before He was born at at the right hand of the throne of God. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And his life would be paid as a ransom for the many that he would redeem and save. Now the crowd that was there on that day, as Jesus said these things, they heard the voice from heaven. But what did they hear? I think there's something really important in that statement. Now, the crowd that heard, as he says in verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it, what did they hear? Well, some heard different things. Some of these people are like people today. It's no different. People who hear the voice of God through His Word are those who believe Him and are saved. And then those whose hearts are not moved by the Holy Spirit only hear noise. They just hear noise. They don't hear what they hear as the Word of God speaking. They just hear noise. And many of them block it out. They block it from their minds. Some of these people said that it was thunder. Oh, it thundered. These are those who attribute spiritual things to earthly phenomena. And we live in a world like that today. Where 
people push aside anything that is spiritual or coming from the God of heaven as an earthly phenomenon. Oh, you just ate too much pizza last night. Oh, it was just the wind blowing at us in a certain way. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. How do they know an angel had spoken to him? What does an angel's voice sound like? These people are the ones who find spiritual messages in everything except the Word of God. We live in that world too. And it, it is pervasive among Christian circles, quote-unquote. People who attribute everything spiritual to everything else except the Word. They look for angels and miracles and signs, but pay little attention to the Scriptures. Jesus said that the voice of the Father was spoken at this time for the sake of His disciples. For them, it was another verbal approval. They had heard the voice of God before. Many of them had heard it at Jesus' baptism. They were there. Many of them had heard it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, at least three heard it on the Mount of Transfiguration. This was for their sake, not for His sake. It was another verbal approval from heaven that the life of Jesus, that Jesus' life and ministry was endorsed by the Father. And what would come next was endorsed by him too. I'm sure they didn't understand all that was taking place. I think we can see that when we get into chapter 13, 14, because they themselves don't understand a lot of things and they become troubled. So I'll leave you with this. And if you're if you're a believer here today, if you're a Christian here today, you've repented of your sins before Christ, uh, you'll, you'll appreciate these questions. And if you're not, you might not appreciate them. Here they are. <clears throat> How do you hear the Word of God today? Do you just hear, hear it like you've sat this morning and hear it as noise, just a bunch of noise? It really doesn't affect me. I mean, I... I'm going to live my life the way I want to anyway. And it doesn't matter what God says. I really don't care. How do you see the Word of God? Because if it's true, and that's your attitude, you'll stand before Christ one day and hear Him say, Depart, I never knew you. Second question, how does your life stack up against the demands of the gospel? Have you, have you given up your life? Are you willing to give up your life to follow Christ wherever He goes? Whatever He has for you? Or are you just 
pursuing your own self, preserving yourself, saving yourself, fulfilling yourself without any thought of Christ. Question number three, have you repented of your sins? This is the missing part of the gospel. Not, many, not much is said about repentance today. But I'm telling you, you, you must repent if you're going to be saved at all. You must repent. Jesus said, if you don't repent, you will perish. Last question. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted Him? Have you relied upon Him? Have you committed yourself to Him? Is He the Master of your life? The Bible says today is the day of salvation, so I'm not going to say to you, go home and think about it. I'm going to say right where you sit right now, this morning, if you haven't trusted Christ, trust Him now. Now. Repent of your sins now. Follow Christ now. And fall in love with Him. And I guarantee you, the things of this world will look different to you. Maybe that's the problem. You've, some of you have never, you've never seen anything as different in the world. It's just all what you want. You're chasing the world. You can't have Christ and do that. You can't have salvation and do that. Trust Him now. From your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember as a 19-year-old, I remember the day that I was convicted of my sin. I probably hadn't done as many evil things as some people had done, but it, that didn't matter. All I saw was me and Christ, and I didn't measure up. And He came to me and He showed that He was the answer to my sin problem. And He saved me and I have never been the same since. I pray, Father, that You do that for those this morning that do not know You. Glorify Yourself. That the Father might be glorified. And, great, and Holy Spirit, we pray that You would do that great work that only You can do in bringing people to Christ. Thank You for this passage of Scripture, for our time together in it. In Jesus' name, Amen.